Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. This episode of This Pathological Life is all about cystic fibrosis. Strap in, we're in for quite an interesting journey. Dr. Travis Brown, where does this story start? It actually starts with a different disease. Uh, so, <laughs> so the disease it starts with, uh, and this will become apparent, is PKU. It's called uh, uh, phenylketonuria. And this is a disease that didn't exist or we didn't know existed 100 years ago. Uh, it, it begins in, in our 1920s, actually, where, where an American mother, her name is Pearl Buck, uh, was traveling back from China with her three-year-old daughter, whose name was Carol. Now, Pearl was concerned about her daughter as she grew. She seemed mentally delayed. Uh, she was growing normally, if you would want to use that term, but her mind didn't seem to be developing. Now, she got back to America and she searched for doctors and psychologists, anyone who she could find to try and help her daughter. I remember when she was only three months old. She lay in her basket on the sun deck of a ship. I had taken her there for the morning air. The people who promenaded on deck often stopped to look at her, and my pride grew as they spoke of her unusual beauty and of the intelligent look of her deep blue eyes. I do not know at what moment the growth of her intelligence stopped, nor to this day why it did. The problem was no one could help. And the reason no one could help was because the condition her daughter had was not known at the time. And so we then have, around this time, Azure Bajorn Pauling, who had just completed his medical training in Oslo. Now, he was 34 years old, so a bit older than even back then uh, for the typical medical graduate. And he had already studied chemical engineering. He had paid his way through medical school, through small loans, and also taught chemistry at a dental college while he was studying. In 1928, he got the Rockefeller Foundation Fellowship and studied metabolic diseases at Harvard, Yale, John Hopkins, and Mayo. So this is a, you know... It's a bit of a thoroughbred pedigree here, isn't it? <laughs> well, from Oslo, so, you know. And by 1934... He becomes a professor of physiology and biochemistry at the Oslo Veterinary College. So he's a researcher and instructor. And then two parents come to see him, Bignori and Harry Egland. And they're given the name by a physician who they've seen quite a few physicians for their children because he was an expert in metabolic diseases. And clearly with that resume, you would agree. Now... Azerbaijan was reluctant. I examined the children mainly because I did not want to be hostile to the mother. So he agreed, and he explained that there's a good chance he would not be able to help them. These are two parents coming to see someone who's been referred at a veterinary college 
to help their children. Now, their two children, Liv was six years old. She was, uh, she was their daughter. And we had Dag, who's four years old. And they were their son. Now, he took a history and examined them. So Liv, who was six years old at the time, by the age of three, only had a few words, only saying a few words. Now, she started to walk with an irregular gait. So it means just not the typical toddler walk. And they were concerned. But then Dag, their four-year-old son, had much more severe symptoms. He had difficulty sitting upright. He was unable to feed himself. And he had these involuntary eye movements that they could notice. (laughs) On the physical examination, what he noted was, yes, what they call feeble-mindedness at the time. But he didn't find anything that accounted for that. And he did note that there was a strange, musty odour. Now, the parents also noted this, and the father was particularly concerned by this. He was asthmatic, and he would, he would find. And they had this musty odour. It, was, it was, came from their like, hair, their skin, their perspiration, even their urine. And so he did some tests, and most of them were unremarkable, but there was one test in particular. He looked at their urine, and there was no pus, there was no, it wasn't acidic, there was no protein and no glucose, but he went and tested ketones. Now, ketones are produced by the liver. Uh, it's when the body breaks down fat to supply energy to the body. We often use it in diabetes because even though diabetic pa- pa- patients will have lots of glucose in the blood, they don't have insulin or they don't, it's insulin resistance, so it can't get into the cells. So the body thinks it's starving. You break down fat, you produce ketones. We know ketones are there. It's why I fast intermittently every day. Well, there you go. So you produce ketones. And so this was where he was going to do a ketone test on the urine. The ketone test back then was called ferric chloride. And so you mix that into the urine and it produces a color to see if ketones are there or not. Mm -hmm. If it turns red-brown, there's no ketones in it. If it turns purple, there's ketones. This urine turned dark green. Hang on, that wasn't one of the options. (laughs) Exactly. And no one had seen this reaction before. So it turned dark green and faded over time. And so that's an unusual reaction. He repeated it a week later and again. Dark green. Dark green. And so he then took six weeks and over 20 litres of the children's urine to find that what this, this product was, he called phenylpyruvic acid. Now, his hypothesis was somehow this was an interfering substance that the children was building up and it was causing their problems. And so he then went and collected urine of 400 institutionalized patients. So remember this feeble-mindedness, people would be intellectually disabled, go into institutions. And so he tested over 400 patients around Oslo and found eight people, two who happened to be siblings, with the same condition, same physical findings, and this green reaction in their urine. So his conclusion was this was a disorder. Now, he called it phenylketonuria. PKU. In 1935. Okay. 
So he then went on to do additional studies and found that it was an autosomal recessive disorder. Three families who were all closely related had it. And then 22 families in the wider population were affected with 18 people and 86 healthy siblings. And so what we know today, just as a quick aside, just to put this into context, this is a disease that affects about 1 in 10,000, 1 in 15,000 children, and they're unable to break down an amino acid called phenylalanine. And so there's a mutation in what we call the PAH gene, and it creates phenylalanine hydroxylase. And that's the enzyme that it breaks down. When you can't produce that or you can't produce it properly, phenylalanine builds up in the body, creates a toxin that disrupts neuron, neuronal communication, and it causes irreversible mental impairment. And so, amazingly, if these patients avoid phenylalanine, they don't get any symptoms. Hey. So, so we have the diagnosis, PKU, and we have a test called ferric chloride. The problem is it's not a good test. So it works, but the problem is you need a lot of urine, not as much as he did trying to find it out, but still or not. And these are babies, children, so you need to collect it. So it would be a hard collection. And not only that, it's not particularly sensitive. So you have to have quite a bit of phenylalanine in the urine to be able to detect it. So kids are missed if you're testing for it in a rare disease. And so not only that, once you've got a positive urine test, they then do a blood test, which again, needs quite a lot of blood, about 20 mil of a child oh. to confirm the test. And at that point in time, there was only one place like in California that had to be sent to be, for it to be done so specialized. And so that created a challenge. And this was in 1930s, 1940s, new disease and not a great test. So then we have Dr. Robert Guthrie. Now, he got his medical degree in 1942. And in 1946, he did a PhD in bacteriology. And in 1947, a pivotal moment happened. Mm -hmm. And his second son is born mentally disabled. So during that next decade, he's working in cancer research. He's using an organism that will become relevant soon. It's called Bacillus subtilis uh, to detect anti-metabolites in cancer patients. So now Robert Guthrie, at this point in time, who has a disabled child, mm -hmm. becomes vice president of an organization which is called the New York State Association for Retarded Children, called ARC, and they have monthly meetings. Now, he invites Dr. Robert Warner, who's a specialist at the newly established Children's Rehabilitation Center in Buffalo in, in, in America. And he, they have monthly uh, meetings, and he invites him to speak at the ARC meeting. And he spoke about PKU, about these children who they had to test their blood concentration to make sure that they were getting their diet optimum for management of this disease. But again, this testing was laborious, it was inefficient, and they clearly got along. So this Dr. Robert Warner and Dr. Robert Guthrie got along well, and to the point that he ended up offering him a position. 
and say, come work with us and work in the rehabilitation center. And he gave him a challenge. Improve the testing for PKU. And Robert Guthrie took him up. Wow. Took him three days. What? He used his knowledge on Bacillus subtilis. And he knew from doing the cancer research that this organism, if you inhibit, in, inhibited phenylalanine, you would stop the organism growing. Therefore, if you give it lots of phenylalanine, it will grow. Therefore, if you have blood with lots of phenylalanine in it, you will produce an overgrowth of this organism, and it will be a positive result. And so, using some drops of blood on a filter paper, he was able to develop a simple and effective test. And it was so simple, you could actually test about 200 children in a day with a single technician. And what he did then is we do now. You compared it against the gold standard of the day. They got over 3,000 specimens from Newark State School. And they had both 17 positive that correlated with his test with the old uh, ferric chloride test. Not only that, there was four more positive in Robert Guthrie's test that were missed by the ferric chloride. Wow. <laughs> so it was more sensitive. And so the, the heartbreaking part is in 1958, Robert Guthrie's niece was diagnosed with PKU, but too late. And so she was already showing signs of neurological impairment. And so Robert Guthrie realized that this was a test that needed to be done early. And you can prevent the debilitating disease if you catch it early enough. But the medical community was actually quite reluctant. And because it's such a rare disease, you're testing thousands of children to find maybe one. And in 1961, New York, with a a national campaign, undertook this early testing. So they clearly got some traction. And there was actually poster children of the campaign from the ARC. There was uh, Sheila and Cammie McGrath. And there's even photos, it's amazing, with JFK uh, uh-huh. from 1961 uh, of these, these two children. Again, the heartbreaking part is they were sisters. Cammie was four and Sheila was six. Cammie had been detected with PKU early enough and prevented from having the neurological symptoms. Sheila had been detected late and was showing symptoms of... Mm-hmm. The disease. And so what they found then by this time was that within two years, he was able to test over 400,000 neonates from 20, 29 states, and they detected 39 cases of PKU. And these would have all been tested early enough for intervention. Right. Mm. And then by 1963, it becomes a routine. By 1967, it becomes mandatory. And then the amazing thing about this, like so many before in, in, in this, and, and not to say that there's anything wrong or bad about this, but I think it's admirable because Dr. Guthrie, he didn't patent the test. He didn't make it, you know, pay a dollar or anything like that. He made it freely available for everyone, gave it away for free. 
And I think for this segment, the last word should go to Pearl Buck. What has been need not forever continue to be so. It is too late for some of our children, but if their plight can make people realise how unnecessary much of the tragedy is, their lives, thwarted as they are, will not have been meaningless. Dr Travis Brown, that, that was PKU for the entree of this episode of Cystic Fibrosis. Now we're actually going to get to cystic fibrosis proper. That's right. So with PKU, you can now understand where screening come from. And so cystic fibrosis is part of our screening test for, for children. In fact, there's a range of tests, you know, 40, 50, depends on where you are as to what tests they are. Now, the important part for this is cystic fibrosis. It is part of the screening test that we do for, for children. And let's, you know, just... We've got a guest coming up who will know far more about all this, which is uh, which is fantastic. But just to put the, this in context, uh, you know, cystic fibrosis, it actually begins with a doctor who was born in 1901. Her name is uh, Dr. Dorothy Anderson. Now, she's quite a remarkable person in herself. Her father died at 13 and she became the sole provider for her mother uh, until her mother died at 19. Uh, so... But she was clearly very intelligent. She, you know, graduated school, college, went to John Hopkins Medical School in, in 1926. She taught anatomy at the University of Rochester in, in New York. And as I'm encountering more and more, she applied for a, a surgical res residency of the program at Strong Hospital. However, can you see it coming? She was female and she didn't get accepted. Exactly. Um, oh. so women were not permitted in, in surgical residency, so uh, she uh, didn't get into that. But instead made uh, went into medical research, and particularly endocrinology. She ended up getting a doctoral degree in this. So in 1935, uh, she's an assistant pathologist at the Children's Hospital, which was the Columbian Presbyterian Medical Center in New York. And she has a, an interest in cardiac abnormalities in, in infants. Uh, and clearly, when you're a pathologist in area, you're doing lots of autopsies. Uh, and she, I guess, an encouraging part of this story, if you want to say, is later on becomes so experienced, is actually begins to advise in cardiac surgery in, in pediatrics later on in life because she's such you know, an expert. So yeah. you know, the, the, the surgical bent came through, fortunately. But there is one case where she was conducting an autopsy of a child that took her interest. And this was a patient who had weight loss, poor growth, and malnutrition. And the, you know, this was around the time, again, we've already discussed, you know, celiac disease. The prevailing diagnosis for these children was believed to be celiac disease. They were malnourished and they unfortunately would die. However, a lot of these children, if they were on a starch-free diet, the system, symptoms would disappear and they wouldn't die. But this was not the case. The child was on a starch-free diet but still died. And on autopsy, she noted that the pancreas was damaged and it had blockages of the pancreatic ducts, which was very unusual and certainly not uh, consistent with findings in celiac disease. And then she found a number of other children with similar findings that were diagnosed as dying from celiac disease. 
but this was not celiac disease. And so it wasn't gluten allergy. They died of what she called cystic fibrosis of the pancreas. And so this is where the word comes from, cystic fibrosis. Mm -hmm. And so we begin to see, as people start to recognize this condition more and more, in, in 1945, there's a pediatric pathologist, Sidney Farber, who coined the term mucoviscosity. And this was to use to explain the thick mucus these children had and were trying to expel or cough up. And so he speculated that this cystic fibrosis was not only a pancreatic problem, but a generalized impairment of mucus production. And then Dorothy Anderson starts conducting a whole bunch of research on relatives of these people who have cystic fibrosis and finds it's an autosomal recessive disorder. Then because we have a new diagnosis, people start to recognize it more and start to study it more. And so there's a pediatrician by the name of Paul de Sant'Agnesi, and he noted that during a heat wave in New York in August of 1948, the cystic fibrosis children had notable losses of salt in sweat. Mm. And so then uh, the professor of pediatrics, uh, William Wallace, in 1957, began to start a, a, a program to try and manage the in lung infections that these children were getting and at the same time, there was an a Irish physiotherapist, uh, Barbara Doyle, who co- developed this system that they ended up calling the English system of chest percussion to try and get the mucus off the chest. As like they a drainage. Them. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's right. And then we had Douglas Crozier, who was at the Toronto Hospital for Sick Children. Now, what was believed was because this mucus was so you know thick and, you know, that these children didn't need fats in their diets. Well, he actually turned that on his head and said, no, they actually need more fats in their diets because they're not absorbing. And so that completely changed the whole dynamics of it. Uh, And these children started to get more nutrients because they held a high-fat diet because their pancreas wasn't working very well and couldn't absorb a lot of the things. So that, you know, you're seeing the, uh, the evolution of our understanding of this disease. And then... By 1980s, we have the the genetics starting to become more and more understood, and we'll discuss that later with, with Professor Graham Southers. But before we get there, just just a you know very quick glance at that. You know, it's important to know in the 1930s to 1940s, the average life expectancy for a, for a child with cystic fibrosis was six months. In 1962, it's about ten years. In the early 2000s, median survival was 27 years. In 2018, the average life expectancy is 44 years, and right at the moment, it's getting towards about 50 years, which in less than 100 years is absolutely remarkable. Isn't it? All right. Well, let's get ready for even something equally remarkable. Professor Graham Southers joining us again. To take a deeper look now into cystic fibrosis, we're joined again on this pathological life uh, by the Director of Genetics, Sonic Pathology, Professor Graham Southers. Welcome back, Graham. Thank you, Steve. I'd like to start with a quantifying question. How prevalent is cystic fibrosis in the general community at the moment? Steve, you have a knack of asking simple questions with complex answers. Um, so I'm sort of figuratively going to, to sit down to, to give this response. Right. 
And the reason that I'm, um, it, it does get complex is if I was to take a snapshot um, in different parts of the world today, I would get different answers to your question. And if I was to take snapshots at the same place, but over time, I would get a different answer to your question. So we need to anchor your question in both time and place to, to come up with an answer to that. So with that proviso, um, if we are plonked in, uh, in Western Europe um, 50 years ago, about one in two and a half thousand babies would be born with cystic fibrosis. Now, as an individual risk for um, uh, Joe and Jane Average having a, a baby at that time and in that place, that's a fairly low chance. But it doesn't take too many babies being born in a year for that to become fairly significant. Um, South Australia has uh, an annual birth rate of around uh, 20,000 babies per year. And so if one in two and a half thousand of those were to have cystic fibrosis, we'd be seeing about eight new cases, new babies with, with cystic fibrosis each year. So you can see that that uh, can quite quickly become very significant. Now the, the frequency in other parts of the world is lower than that because uh, some parts of the world have a relatively low frequency of, of this condition. And we also find that if we were to plonk ourselves in the middle of Western Europe today or in South Australia today, that the um, prevalence of this condition within the community would be lower than what I've described because there are now a variety of screening programs that give couples uh, who are at risk of having a child with cystic fibrosis reproductive options that they can consider. Now, look, those screening programs have their, their pluses and minuses, um, so there's, uh, I don't want to suggest that they are perfect, but that certainly has had an impact on the uh, number of babies born with cystic fibrosis each year in South Australia, for example. So I was just going to ask, the, like the figure that I've seen for carrier rates, now that will clearly change because, uh, as you say, the one in two and a half thousand is based on the carrier rate, therefore carrier rates will, will equate to the homozygous uh, manifestation. But I've seen about one in 30 have carrier rates of cystic fibrosis. Is that about right? Cystic fibrosis is what we call an autosomal recessive disorder. That is to say the affected child has inherited an abnormal copy of the, the CF gene from each parent. So the parent has one abnormal copy of the CF gene, but the other copy is normal, and that is sufficient for the parent to, uh, to not develop features of, of this disorder. So a person with one abnormal gene like this and then a normal copy who is uh, clinically unaffected is called a carrier. And we can do some simple mathematics to relate the um, proportion of the population who are carriers and the frequency with which babies with cystic fibrosis are born in that community. Now, it's that carrier frequency that varies in different parts of the world. And um, in some parts of uh, Northern Europe, it's around uh, 4%, one in 25. Um, in Australia, recent studies have indicated that the carrier frequency is around one in 30. And that difference could either be due to a bit of random fluctuation or more likely that we have a mixture of people who are now in Australia. The Australian population is not um, genetically or ethnically homogeneous, 
And so what we're seeing in the, the one in 30 frequency of carriers in Australia reflects the, the, the mix of people that make up this country of ours. Mm. So can I ask then about the genetics of cystic fibrosis? So you, you've mentioned the CFTR gene. Um, can you tell us where that is and how many mutations uh, this uh, causes uh, in, in this disease? So, Travis, it's an interesting question as to which chromosome uh, the, the CF gene sits on. Look, I'll, I'll give you a freebie and tell you that it sits on chromosome 7. But I'm going to come, at, come back at you to say, look, I think it's actually an irrelevant bit of information. Um, and the reason I say that is that uh, there are so many genes now scattered over different chromosomes, the, the chromosome location usually makes no difference whatsoever. The only thing that really matters from a clinical point of view is whether the gene of interest is on the X or Y chromosome, the sex chromosomes, or not. And the cystic fibrosis gene is not on one of those chromosomes. It's on that group of chromosomes that we call the autosomes. And so that, from a clinical point of view, a counselling point of view, is the only information that's required. Now, I'm being fairly um, sort of emphatic about that because I'm casting my mind back to my early days when I was training in clinical genetics, and this was in the, the late 80s. And, and at that point, there were so few genes that had been cloned that it was sort of a, a, um, a trainee geneticist's party trick to be able to tell you which chromosome uh, had you know, the latest gene and so on. <laughs> but as the number of genes being identified just accelerated, became more and more, firstly, my memory couldn't keep up. And it also dawned on me that it was irrelevant. So whether this is chromosome 15 or 9 or 2 or whatever, that was very important for the researchers, but it was not important for the clinicians. Um, so the, the, the information is there, but it's curiosity rather than need that would drive uh, the asking and answering of that question. Yeah, certainly. So uh, my understanding is there's a lot of mutations of this gene that cause cystic fibrosis? Yes, there are many, many mutations. This, in, in fact, is uh, intriguing in itself. Um, there are well over a thousand uh, mutations that have now been catalogued, um, which is intriguing. Why, why are there so many mutations? And in fact, why is this such a common condition? One possibility is that there is some particular advantage for carriers in, in being a carrier, it might be something have to be something subtle that, that uh, isn't, isn't, doesn't have a dramatic effect. And if there is indeed some advantage, maybe that explains why from an evolutionary perspective, there have been multiple attempts, as it were, genetically speaking, to create carriers, lots of opportunities where a chance error in the gene has occurred. And because it provides some advantage, it has then spread within the population. So there, there are many, many, many mutations. Um, from a laboratory's point of view, that's a bit of a headache because it'd be so much nicer if we could analyze just one particular part of the gene and that was where um, the mutations almost always occurred. There are examples of that. Uh, fragile X syndrome is a classic example where 99.9% .9 of the genetic errors responsible for fragile X syndrome occur at a particular point in the gene. And so we can have a very focused, uh, efficient way of testing. Cystic fibrosis is a bit more of a headbanger because we've got to go looking. And there are usually some trade-off in terms of the proportion of mutations that we look for and the cost of the test. One of the theories I came across was that uh, heterozygous carriers for cystic fibrosis had an advantage of uh, retaining fluids in the past. So it was, uh, it was interesting 
that they thought that there was a survival advantage for people who had cystic fibrosis uh, carrier um, to, to stop losing fluids in a, I think, a, um, an arid or a... no, in um, when you would get cholera, I think it, it was, um, but I'm not quite sure. You might be able to shed some light on that, Craig. So the, the frequency with which carriers for cystic fibrosis occur in some communities has certainly raised the possibility that there is some advantage, the, the um, carrier advantage that, that they um, are, in an evolutionary sense, more fit for their environment than people who are not carriers. And that advantage, we'll come to what it might be in a moment, is offset by the risk of having a child who uh, used to would, would die of cystic fibrosis before uh, modern therapies were available. So there was a, um, a a benefit, but also a cost. And what we see in the community is a, a balance of those uh, risks and benefits, if I could put it that way, of, of of having cystic fibrosis. And just as an aside, it begs the question: What is a bad gene? Mm -hmm. um, here we have mutations that can be both good and bad. And uh, so that there's an interesting ethical uh, dimension to this, which, which we won't pursue for the moment. But given the frequency of cystic fibrosis, yes, what, what is the survival advantage for the carriers? Now, the CFTR gene, which is the one responsible for cystic fibrosis, is involved in chloride transport, so chloride ions. And that raised the possibility that there might be some um, perturbation of chloride transport in carriers, very subtle, not sufficient to cause any problem in day-to-day -day life, but would that be significant in relation to chloride transport in more serious situations where you had some form of toxic diarrhea and cholera is a, a particular example. So uh, quite a lot of work was done um, exploring this to try and get a sense of whether people who are carriers for cystic fibrosis may be more tolerant of cholera not in an absolute sense of being immune, but at least a better chance of surviving. And that was plausible. But then there's a fascinating study um, about 15 years ago now where they looked at this in more detail and did some, um, some accurate modeling and were able to demonstrate that being a carrier of cystic fibrosis and the benefit of that being in relation to cholera would lead to some increase in the frequency of the, the CF carriers within the community but not to the degree seen in Western Europe. So it was potentially a contributing factor, but it could not be held up as the sole factor. But they went, continued down the path of asking, are there other infections for which this might be important? And they looked at it from another direction and said, what was the predominant uh, epidemic over hundreds of years in Western Europe, uh, 500 or so years ago? And the answer is tuberculosis. So TB was a major cause of, of death across Western Europe in the 14, 15, 16, 1700s, and even later. Um, my own maternal grandmother died of uh, TB in London uh, in the early part of last century. So TB has been with us for a long time, and 150, 200 years ago accounted for about 20% of adult death. So this was a, a major killer. And the hypothesis came up is does being a carrier of cystic fibrosis provide some protection against TB? And the short answer is yes, it does. And it appears that carriers of cystic fibrosis have a lower risk of dying from TB than non-carriers. That TB is relatively uncommon in children with cystic fibrosis. We know that children with cystic fibrosis get all sorts of nasty lung infections. That's a, a major medical issue. And they can get tuberculosis, but it occurs less frequently than you would expect. 
And there is now some early molecular data suggesting a mechanism whereby the being a carrier for cystic fibrosis can um, blunt some of the impact of, of TB. Mm. But I want to emphasize here that it is a, a relative advantage. It does not make you immune. So we're looking at this from flying the helicopter quite high and saying TB is a scourge and we need to take it very seriously. It's just that carriers have a slight advantage over non-carriers. So I was just going to ask then, can you tell us a little bit about the pathology or the clinical presentations of, of uh, people with cystic fibrosis, about the, the manifestations that they'll, they'll have, just as a, as a summary point uh, for cystic fibrosis? Cystic fibrosis was first recognized as a, um, a, sort of a, a single gene medical disorder some oh, 70 or more years ago now. And the, the way that the children were identified was that within the first few months of life, they began to develop two major problems. The first was that they were clearly not absorbing their food very well. And by the time, if they got to 18 months or being weaned and so on, that a lot of the food went straight through. So there was malabsorption. And at the same time, they also had recurrent and persistent chest infections that caused major chronic problems. But as people started to think about cystic fibrosis and begin to understand the, the underlying biology, they noted that the sweat on these children was particularly salty. And lo and behold, if you go back to the midwife records from the 1700s, there is a caution that the child who is salty at birth is likely to have a short life. And what is, was being picked up there was that this high salt concentration in the child's sweat is an indication of impaired chloride transport because of the mutations in the cystic fibrosis gene. So classically, that combination of, of salty sweat, malabsorption, and recurrent chest infections was the, the, the classical triad, the hallmark of, of cystic fibrosis. If we move to the present day, where there are very good screening programs, newborn screening programs now uh, for cystic fibrosis, um, I should say as an aside that the reason that screening programs for this are justified is that an early diagnosis allows early therapy and better outcomes. So this is why screening programs have been developed for this uh, in the last uh, 20 years in Australia and many other parts of the world. This means that the most common way of cystic fibrosis being diagnosed, at least initially, is a report from the cystic fibrosis or the newborn screening program rather than the child demonstrating any features. And that there is a, um, a psychological, uh, a social uh, issue there, I think, um, because we're asking parents to trust uh, something written on a piece of paper rather than look at their child and say, my child is unwell. And that perhaps could be a subject for another day. Um, we do occasionally find that children have slipped through that, that net and have not been caught by the newborn screening program and presented in the way I've described. And we also recognize that there's a wider spectrum of cystic fibrosis-related disorders. So there are some situations where a person can have uh, very mild features of cystic fibrosis that would not have triggered that diagnosis in the past. So this might be uh, recurrent chest infections with, with bronchiectasis, uh, a particular sort of persistent form of bacterial infection in the lungs. Or if we take it to an extreme, there is a condition of congenital bilateral absence of the vas deferens, which is a lovely title, Steve. I'm sure you'd like to write that up on the studio wall. <laughs> but what it refers to is a, um, a blockage or, or lack of a tube 
um, in the in the scrotum that carries sperm from the testis and into the urethra. And so a man who has this uh, congenital uh, absence of the vas deferens is infertile. Now we find this particular abnormality in males, uh, adult males with cystic fibrosis. And we now recognize that there can be men who have this abnormality with no overt evidence of cystic fibrosis who also carry uh, errors in the cystic fibrosis gene. Now, it's a matter of terminology as to, you know, do we include that in the chapter on lung diseases or the chapter on uh, mal causes of malabsorption, or do we only include it in the chapter on causes of male infertility? There is a common underlying genetic mechanism there, but there are clearly differences in how these things are being worked out. And so I'm not going to try and answer the questions to which chapter it should be in, other than to note that this problem of classifying and categorizing disease will get worse before it gets better, I think, as we learn more about the subtle impact of our changes in our genes. This has been the most fascinating episode. Uh, Professor Graham Southers, thank you. I don't, I, you can see my reactions as you're talking. I have had jaw dropping and eyes open the whole way through. And I, I also just licked my hand. I'm not salty. So I, I'm feeling quite relieved at that. Good. <laughs> Professor Graham Southers, thanks again for joining us on This Pathological Life. You're most welcome. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives, when applicable, can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening and just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there and we'd love to have you along.